Welcome to the Focus Today podcast with Perry Atkinson. All right, well, welcome back. And uh, hey, Jim Burling's with us. Always glad to have him. He is the Pacific Legal Foundation Vice President of Legal Affairs. Uh, Jim and his team, these are frontline warriors when it comes to things happening at the Supreme Court. Uh, you can go to pacificlegal.org is the website, pacificlegal.org. There's a picture of the landing page. Hey, Jim, good to see you, bud. How are you? Hey, it's nice to be with you again. Thank you. Good to see you. Boy, so many things. Uh, what are some of the blockbuster cases before the court right now? So they're not arguing anything this week, and they won't be until after Thanksgiving. But last week, they had a fascinating cause called Rahimi. It's a gun case. Now, you recall uh, about a year ago, the Supreme Court, a little less than a year ago, the Supreme Court struck down New York City's laws against carrying guns in, in public. And the court left a few things open. But one key thing that the court said is that in order to determine whether a gun regulation is constitutional, you have to look at the tradition and history of gun regulations at the time the Constitution was first adopted and 1791, and then amended after the Civil War. And so we have this case dealing with Mr. Rahimi. Zaki Rahimi is not a good person at this point. He, he says he's trying to reform himself, but at the time of these proceedings, he was certainly not a good person. He had been subject to a state domestic violence order telling him to stay away from his wife. That happened when he had an argument with his wife and he pulled a gun and waved it around and a witness was looking at this and he fired the gun in the direction of the witness, missed him. And so he had a, you know, a restraining order against him saying, don't get near your wife. And when you have a restraining order under state law in a domestic violence case, a federal law immediately kicks in that makes it a federal felony to have possession of a firearm. So after the domestic restraining order that was put on Zaki Rahimi, he continued to have a gun and he continued to have several incidences with guns. In one case, he got into a traffic altercation, fired a gun, nobody got hurt. In another case, uh, one of his clients, he was a drug dealer, and one of his clients uh, had a um, uh, disagreement with him, and he fired into the house of the client, the buyer of the drugs. Uh, nobody was hurt. And another time, he was in a Whataburger line, and a friend's credit card wasn't accepted, and he fired the gun into the air a few times. Again, fortunately, thank God, nobody was hurt in any of these incidences. But he was prosecuted under the federal law saying it's a felony to carry a firearm, to possess a firearm, if you're subject to a domestic restraining order. Mm. And surprisingly, uh, the Fifth Circuit found that it was unconstitutional to have this order applied against Mr. Rahimi because there was no equivalent kind of restraining order prohibitions on owning guns at the time the Constitution was first adopted. The court said, look, in 1791, you could have a you could be prevented from having a gun if you were mentally incompetent or insane, as was called at that time, if you were a public drunkard. And that's about it, according to the official laws. And so the court said there is no such equivalent of a domestic violence order. And therefore, the 
uh, prohibition against Mr. Rahimi owning guns was unconstitutional. Oh, that was quickly appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court heard arguments last week. And I think bottom line is that the justices, pretty much all of them, were pretty skeptical of what the Fifth Circuit did and seemed to be looking for a way to find the law constitutional, at least as it was applied to Mr. Rahimi. Gosh, where do you think that's going to go? I think the court's going to find that when you have somebody with a severe predilection of violence, that it is okay to have a statute prohibiting that person from owning a gun. Now, there was a distinction in the argument going back and forth. Well, it's one thing not to be a law-abiding citizen. That may be too far to prohibit somebody like that from owning guns, somebody who runs a lot of red lights or whatever. But it's quite another to have somebody with a history of violence. And uh, the U.S. government was making the argument, and I think it was being well received by the government, that in a case like this, where you have a demonstrated predilection of violence, it's okay to ban somebody from having guns. Now, the problem then comes up with is that in a lot of domestic violence orders, uh, it's a kind of a he said, she said thing. It's not real clear if there is any potential violence or if there was violence in the past. Some judges look at a dispute and say, oh, pox on both of your houses. I'm going to have both of you restrained from getting close to the other one. Uh, and then in that case, both would be restrained from having a gun. And sometimes, the domestic violence allegation from one spouse or the other is used as leverage in a child custody dispute. So it's not clear that all instances of domestic uh, restraining orders, domestic violence restraining orders, actually indicate a real predilection of violence. But there's no question that in Mr. Rahimi's case, that he did have a propensity toward violent behavior. Well, subsequently to the domestic violence, he had other incidences where he just arbitrarily shot a gun. Aren't, isn't that criminal in some way? Yeah, that is certainly criminal in some way. But the federal law at issue here didn't deal with those particular instances. The federal law here pretty explicitly says that you shall be prohibited from having a gun if you're subject to a domestic violence restraining order, period. Uh, the subsequent showings of violent acts is not part of the federal prohibition. Certainly under state law, I think it would be perfectly acceptable to say, no, you've shot the gun at your drug dealer, or excuse me, your drug client, you've shot the gun at a, in a traffic road rage incident, you've shot the gun when you got upset at a Whataburger line. That should be enough under state law. Um, but that's, those subsequent incidents were not the incidents that uh, led to the restraining violence, uh, domestic restraining order in the first place, and were not the incidents that led to the felony conviction. Do you think there may be a marrying between a state and a federal law that goes to uh, restraining orders? In other words, if somebody is given a domestic restraining order, that that would prohibit them to having a gun as long as that order is in place? That's what the federal law says. As long as there is a domestic restraining order, you are prohibited from carrying a gun. That's the federal law. So the federal law is relying on state adjudication of a domestic restraining order. So it is a kind of case where federal law is not acting independently. It's acting in conjunction with state law, although the state laws were enacted without any 
uh, oftentimes with any look forward to what the federal law would say in the future, because most states have had the mechanism for domestic violent restraining orders for a long time. This federal gun law is only from the 1990s. All right. This is going to be interesting to see how that turns out. Okay. Uh, I know that you have also filed your organization, Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, you have filed an argument or an opening brief on a issue in El Dorado County. Uh, this is a fascinating case. Can you walk us through that? Yeah. So George Sheets is a 72-year-old gentleman, and about several years ago, he applied for a permit to put a 1,850-square-foot manufactured home on 10 acres that he had in rural El Dorado County, California, which is just east of Sacramento. He was told he could have the permit, but he had to pay $23,400 for traffic mitigation fees including about $2,400 to help improve a highway interchange on Highway 50, and Highway 50 is four miles from his property as the road goes. And he argued, wait a minute, I'm just me and my wife. We don't have a huge impact on traffic. I'm a 72-year-old guy. Why am I spending $23,400 for traffic mitigation when I'm just the guy, you know, and my wife driving to the grocery store and back? And the courts in California said, look, uh, it doesn't matter if the, if the county said that you should be subject to the fee, that's good enough for us. Well, George Sheet said, well, what about this ruling that there's been a number of Supreme Court rulings, Pacific Legal Foundation has been involved in several of them, where the courts have said that you cannot force somebody to pay money or give away property in exchange for a building permit unless the government is able to demonstrate that in your particular case, you're having a, an adverse impact and that the money or land being required in exchange of the permit is being going to use to ameliorate, to, to take care of whatever problems you're causing. So for example, if you're building a home and it's blocking access to a trail, you may have to dedicate some of your property to allow the trail to be reopened. Or if you are building a home and you are going to have a legitimate impact on traffic, the government can perhaps require a fee, but they have to prove the connection. But what happened here, the court said, look, those old cases don't apply because the county adopted a map and the map had six zones and each zone said how much you'd have to pay if you get a building permit. And therefore, it wasn't the sort of uh, permitting process that we normally think of that where these fees are imposed. It was a legislative process. So the court, um, so the California court said, no, nope, not good enough. Uh, we're, we're just simply going to allow this fee to go forward. So we asked the Supreme Court to take the case, uh, and the court accepted the case. And uh, we just filed our first brief earlier this week, and we are arguing that in every instance where the court has struck down fees in the past, it hasn't mattered whether it's a legislative act done by the county or an act under the permitting. The, th the thing that's important is that government should not be able to use the fact that you're trying to get a permit as leverage to get something that it doesn't deserve in exchange, whether it's asking for land or money or whatever. Uh, that's simply not the way to do it. People who want to build homes are not ATMs for their local governments. That is spot on. I, I, I can't help but think you're going to win this. But on the other hand, you've got to go through the motions. I mean, this is a clear case 
of administration overreach, where they can just arbitrarily put a fee onto something and make you fight for it. Um, you know. Yeah, a- absolutely. They realize that they have the typical permit applicant over a barrel. You need the permit to do something. You need the permit to do almost anything on your property. And governments see this is just the way to get something they want. If you want to improve the roads, a normal way of doing that would be to have taxes being paid by everybody who's going to use the road. But it's hard to raise taxes. There's political issues. Why not instead get somebody who hasn't even perhaps moved into town yet, who's trying to build a home, pay these huge exorbitant fees? It's a way of getting things for nothing. Yeah. Well, the only thing I can say, Jim, is thank you for you and uh, Pacific Legal Foundation for taking this case and taking it all the way to the Supreme Court. This is going to be monumental. This is good stuff. Let me take a break. PacificLegal.org is Jim's website. You can check it out. There's a picture of the landing page, and uh, these are frontline warriors for our rights, uh, especially it relates to the Supreme Court. Go there, check it out, support them. We'll be right back. We'll be back to this week's interview in just a few seconds. In the meantime, we want to let you know that you can watch this interview, plus many more exclusive interviews that happen this week on the Dove's Daily TV and radio show by visiting our website, thedove.us. And while you're there, sign up for our free daily devotional, The Word for You Today. Three months of daily readings that will connect you with God's Word. Now, back to the show. All right, welcome back. Always a delight to have with us uh, Jim Burling. Jim is the uh, Pacific Legal Foundation Vice President of Legal Affairs, and their organization, their foundation, has taken some big cases to the Supreme Court and win. They're winners. So uh, check out PacificLegal.org is the website. Uh, there's a picture of the landing page for those of you watching on the Dove TV channel. And, um, or just go online, PacificLegal.org, and uh, check out all the things they're involved in and support them. Jim, I want to what time I got left here, a couple of cases. You and I were talking briefly about uh, the Supreme Court case um, dealing with the fishing boat. <laughs> That's right, Loper Bright. Yeah, this is a fascinating case. What's going on there? Well, nothing so far. Uh, the briefs are starting to be trick- filed and trickled in, but a lot of people are looking at this is a case where it may be the, a case where the administrative state gets a little comeuppance. Uh, This is a case where, as you recall, the owner of a fishing boat has to, according to federal law, have a federal observer on the boat. And the federal observer will look at what fish you're catching, where you're catching it, what bycatch you have, that is, the fish that you're not trying to fish that might come into the nets anyway, how you treat those, all kinds of issues. The federal observer will also look at your books, look at your records and your logs, and go through with a fine-tooth cone, make sure every I has been dotted, every T crossed. And a lot of the uh, fishermen aren't very happy about having these observers on board, but this is a federal law. But the question has come down to, who pays for these federal observers on the, law, in the, on the boats? And the statute saying that the federal government can put the observers onto fishing boats says nothing about who pays. So the National Marine Fisheries Service came up with a regulation and says boat owner pays. And the boat owner can pay, you know, around $700 a day 
for the observers to go out on the fishing boats, which for the typical fisherman or woman is a lot of money. If you don't catch any fish that day, that could be all your profits and then some. Um, It's a huge expense. So it doesn't say. So the court is asking the question, uh, who pays? Now, there has been for a long time this doctrine called the Chevron Doctrine that says whenever an agency comes up with an interpretation of law, courts have to defer to the agency. And that's what happened in the lower courts here. The court said, well, if the you know, federal agency says the fisher boat can pay, that's the fishermen will pay. And what's being argued now is no. You should not defer to the agency that the courts have a duty to determine what the law is, and the courts have to determine who gets to pay based on what the law says, and the law says nothing, rather than uh, what the agency would like the case to be. The agency can't make up the law, only Congress can make up the law, and only the courts should interpret the law. So, another case of administrative overreach, right? Very, very much so, because there was no authority for the agency, the federal agency, to impose the cost on the fishing boat. They just wanted to do it so it wouldn't incur their budget. But something this big a deal to the fishermen, where it's having a significant economic impact, is the sort of thing, if Congress wanted that to be the law, then Congress could have said so. Congress didn't say so. So the agency is making up the law the way it thinks the law should be written, but not the way it actually was written. And that's just too far. That's administrative agencies running amok. And so the hope is that the Supreme Court is going to rein in the federal agency and the federal government in this case. That's kind of a message, Dave, to state legislatures. You know, I would say the houses in some of these states need to say to their agencies, you just can't arbitrarily raise rates and charge fees and do things without legislative approval. I mean, we got to get that fixed. (laughs) Yeah, we really do. And so many legislatures at the federal level, state level, they just pass really vague laws because they don't want to take the heat for the outcome. So you pass a really vague law telling an agency to do, do good stuff for the public or whatever. And the agency comes up with all kinds of rules and regulations, costs and fees, and people complain. They said, this is this is too much. And the legislators will say, oh, our hands are tied. The, the agency is the one that created these rules and regulations, not us. So the, so the legislatures are basically trying to wash their hands of responsibility because they pass vague laws. And so it's about time that the courts say, no, agencies can't make up the law. If you want a law, the legislature has to pass it, period. Well, okay. Uh, isn't the is isn't the responsibility of both houses in state and federal government is to manage the money? <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I yeah. mean, Congress has the power of the purse, right. and Congress has oversight oversight over how much money is being spent, where the money is coming from, and it should not simply say to federal agencies go ahead and uh, raise money. I mean, we have another case of the Supreme Court dealing with uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, where that agency is getting money without congressional authorization. It's getting money from the federal treasury based on a formula, and it never has to go to Congress to uh, ask for money. And 
that seems to be violating the power of the purse. When the, when the Constitution was adopted, James Madison wrote really forcefully that Congress's power over the purse was an important check on the executive agencies, administrative agencies. It was very, very important that Congress use the power over the budget in order to make sure that the federal government was operating properly. And if you give the federal agencies blank checks, if you will, uh, be able to make up rules, regulations, assess its own fees, uh, basically impose taxes on people the way it is in the fishing boat case, or as it does on the um, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau by basically getting a blank check, uh, then there's no oversight. Agencies will run amok because they don't have to worry about Congress cutting off their purse strings if they do something wrong. They can just, hey, we got the money, we can do whatever we like. And that is not our constitutional system of government. For sure. All right. One other quick question. Uh, might run out of time. Uh, is affirmative action alive and well in Tennessee as it relates to uh, a doctor not meeting racial criteria? <laughs> uh, we would like to think affirmative action is not alive and well. But indeed, you have boards in Tennessee, uh, medical boards, and there are quota systems. You have to have a certain number of people from various ethnic groups and minority groups and so on and so forth on these particular boards. Indeed, we've seen the same thing here in California. And so we filed a lawsuit challenging this practice, saying this violates the Equal Protection Clause. Hey, don't you remember just last year where the Supreme Court struck down racial goals in college admissions at Harvard and University of North Carolina, saying that the Equal Protection Clause does not allow the government to divide people up by race and treat different people of different races differently? This is a country where everybody should be treated fairly not according to the color of their skin, or as Martin Luther King said, instead by the content of their character. Mm. And so we've challenged this idea that medical boards should be race-based in Tennessee, and we're hoping that the eventually that the courts will come around and say, no, no, equal protection clause means equal protection, not more protection for some groups than others. All right. One other quick question, uh, Jim, before I let you go. Um, I, I want to come back to overall um, censorship of big tech. Is anything being done there? Well, there have been a couple of cases that are before the court uh, on the question of whether or not Texas and Florida can pass laws restricting uh, the ability of big tech companies to censor or not. Uh, it becomes a very fraught issue because you have the tech companies wanting to do censorship, uh, saying that we are a private entity, we're not government, so we can censor whoever we want. But then at the same time, you recall that the administration, the Biden administration, was hot and heavy telling the Facebook and YouTube to censor views it didn't agree with, whether they were on mask restrictions for COVID-19 or under the Hunter Biden laptop issue. They were giving lots of heat on the, on the tech companies to do censorship on the government's behalf. So it's is really a difficult quagmire that we've gotten into with the tech companies with so much power, but at the same time, the federal government trying to utilize that power for its own ends. So I think we are going to see a lot of 
very contentious legal arguments in the coming months yeah. and years, perhaps, on the issue of tech censorship and government forcing the tech companies to censor. Uh, that would be the issue uh, without getting into detail. We were the first broadcast network to get right. booted from YouTube, and then they took 15,000 of our videos. So not only was there this agreement, but then there was this damage. And I don't know if that would be covered. But anyway, that's the case for another day. Uh, do you think, just quickly, do you think any of this um, censorship falls under the um, antitrust laws? Well, there's a question of whether or not the tech companies have gotten so big that they essentially have a monopoly on information. Uh, and for that reason, some people are advocating that they get regulated like public utilities are. Yeah. Uh, but are, are they? It's a it's a huge question. Yeah. Right? We will see. I, I don't see it right now because there's so many of them. But are they colluding? That would be the issue. Hey, good to see you, friend. Thank you. Uh, PacificLegal.org is Jim's website. Very informative. Uh, these guys are frontline warriors. You can tell by some of the cases that they're presenting and, and following. So support them, PacificLegal.org. Thank you, Jim. If I don't see you, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. Thank you for listening to this week's Focus Today podcast. Remember, you can visit our website to check out all the interviews we did this week on our daily Focus Today TV show at thedove.us. And if you like this podcast, please take a moment to rate us and share it with your friends.